Now, I'm sure you have all heard the cliche statement, anything is possible if you just work hard enough. Or anything is possible if you just put your mind to it. I'm sure we've all heard that. I'm sure we've probably said that to somebody before. We like to say that to kids to motivate them. <laughs> but that's not true at all. There are plenty of things in this life that are impossible. I can't levitate objects. I'm never going to play in the NBA. Those things are certainly impossible. Can't time travel. There's plenty of things in life that are impossible for us. And then there are those things that are not impossible, but highly improbable. In science and mathematics and engineering, they like to focus on those things, the highly improbable, and to see if we can actually make them possible. I'm sure a thousand years ago, there was a lot of things that people thought was impossible. You know, flying in a jet at 500 miles per hour across the ocean was probably impossible in their minds. Or coding the genome. Indeed, they probably didn't even know that there was such thing as DNA or a genome to even code. There's plenty of things that back then were impossible. And what's impossible today might be possible tomorrow. Science and technology is continuing to increase and things that we never thought could happen are starting to seem like they might be able to happen. And one of those things is living on Mars. <laughs> I mean, what do you guys think? Have you thought about, is it possible? Could we possibly live on Mars? Can there be a population of human beings on that planet that can live sustainably? And with Elon Musk and other guys, they definitely think it is possible. I'm a little bit skeptical. I might put it in the impossible camp. Now, there's certainly this reality that God makes a lot of things that are impossible possible. And that's where we get our idea of miracles, really. The things that are impossible to us, God makes possible. Jesus can calm the storm. He can raise the dead to life. Indeed, as we saw two weeks ago, God can speak into existence things that do not exist. So with God, it's a whole different thing. Many things are possible with God that are impossible to us. Now, given the nature of God... And given the nature of sinful man, there is one thing, though, one thing that should seem impossible. There's one thing that should be impossible. Now, let's actually think about the nature of God for a second here. There are things that are impossible to God, and that might sound crazy to you. There are certain things God cannot do. God cannot sin. God cannot do evil. God cannot lie. God cannot tempt someone to sin. The Bible even says that very straightforwardly. God cannot tempt you to sin. There, there are things that are impossible to God. So think again. Given the nature of God and given the nature of sinful man, there is one thing that should be, to our minds at least, as impossible. What is that thing? What do you think it is? And it's man's reconciliation to God. Man's reconciliation to God. 
And if you're wondering why I would say that, bear with me. We will see soon enough. Now, if you remember, we have been in a series in Colossians chapter 1. And we just finished two weeks ago in verses 15 and 20. We just finished the main first really body of this, of this letter that Paul is writing. This church in Colossae is being plagued with a false gospel and some false teachers. And Paul is writing a letter in response to it to encourage them, to ground them in their faith, to give them weapons really to assault these false teachers. And so the first really assault that Paul brings against these false teachers is a beautiful display of the nature and the character of Christ. And that's what we looked at in verses 15 through 20. Now, if you remember, the very last point that we made on the nature of Jesus Christ was that Christ is sufficient. And what did I say he was sufficient to do? He was sufficient in reconciling to himself his enemies. He was sufficient in the act of reconciliation. That's where we left off. And I defined reconciliation briefly, and I said it is making peace with one's enemies. Reconciliation is making peace with one's enemies. It means to have a restored relationship between people who are divided and separated and have conflict. So now as we move in our, to our text tonight, verses 21 through 23, we're going to pick up on this theme of reconciliation and we're going to consider it more. And really, what I want for tonight is I want you to know four features of God's sufficient act of reconciliation. I want you to know four features of God's sufficient act of reconciliation. So let us read our text, and then we can dive into it and see these four features. So follow along, and starting in verse 21 with me. It's only three verses. Paul says, In you who once were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So, what is our first feature of God's sufficient act of reconciliation? It is this. Reconciliation requires a people. Reconciliation requires a people. So if we consider the definition of reconciliation that I gave already, we see that reconciliation is making peace between two parties or two people. It could be two individuals. It could be an individual to a family. It could be two families. It could be two tribes. It could be two nations. So there needs to be two parties in this act of reconciliation. So who are these two parties? Who are these two people that are being reconciled? Well, we know one is God. He is one party. He is one person in this act. And reconciliation between God and this other party is not like so many reconciliations that we experience on earth as human beings. I'm sure you've probably heard it before. Well, you know, it takes two to start a fight. Oh, well, if there was conflict, there's probably sin on both sides. Both people probably have something to confess. Both people probably contributed to the conflict or the strife. 
or the division or the separation. I mean, we hear that all the time. It's likely true. Well, we're sinful people, so it's, it's almost impossible to have a conflict with somebody and not also have some issues in it, some sin in it. Both sides are usually culpable. And both sides usually need to ask for forgiveness to see reconciliation happen. That's usually our experience of reconciliation. But God's reconciliation with this other party is not like that at all. God is totally in the right. All of the separation, all of the pain, all of the punishment, all of the division, all of the conflict, all of the strife is because of us. And thus, we are the second party involved in this act of reconciliation. This division that we experience, this separation that we experience with God, we are totally in the wrong. God has no error in this conflict. None at all. He's totally in the right. Now, Who's we? Who's us in this? You know, who are these people that I've been talking about? I say us. We're the ones that are culpable for the separation. We're the ones to blame for the separation between us and God. Well, who is us? All people of all times? Well, certainly all peoples of all times are enemies of God and separated from God. But that's not what Paul is talking about here in our text. If you look at your text again, He says, and you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, and you. So who's Paul talking about? He's talking about the Christians in Colossae. He's talking about the Christians in the Colossian church. Christians, you, you were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Christians. Now, the people of reconciliation are the people who God foreknew before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. These people are born into this world dead. If you're a Christian here today, you were born into this world dead, but soon to be made alive. Before you heard the gospel and you experienced the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, you look like everyone else on earth. Everyone else on earth. Dead, hostile in mind, alienated to God, separated from God. Now, this is the interesting thing. There's those whom God has foreknown, those whom God has predestined to be saved, those whom God will reconcile to himself. But before he does that, they look like everyone else. You looked like everyone else before you were saved. I was trying to think of a good way to think about this. This is like... An illustration in the opposite. It's like people with the coronavirus, but they're asymptomatic. No symptoms. You would never know that they have the coronavirus. Now flip it. You, before you became a Christian, no idea. No idea that you would one day be a child of God. No idea that you would be one who has been foreknown to be saved. No idea at all. You had no idea. Nobody had any idea. You're asymptomatic in a sense. So again, that's the people of reconciliation. Those Christians who God has foreknown, those people are 
who Paul is talking about that have been reconciled and will be reconciled to God. Now, what are they like before they've been reconciled? Paul tells us. Let's actually look at these more specifically. The first one is this. He says that they're alienated. Look at the text, verse 21. Who once were alienated. And this is the reality that we were all in again before we were saved. We were aliens or foreigners to God. Or a better way to think of it is we were enemies to God. You know, it's easy to think about, well, an alien or a foreigner here might not be an enemy in the United States, but think of it as though we were aliens or foreigners who were terrorists in a sense. We hated this other country, this other nation, this other kingdom. Enemies against it. Now we see this very clearly in Romans chapter 5, verses 10 through 11. Listen to what Paul says. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So there it's very clear. To be alienated to, it means to be an enemy. We are enemies of God before our reconciliation. But Paul goes on. What else does he say? He says, you once were alienated and hostile in mind. And hostile in mind. Again, in verse 21. What does this mean, to be hostile in mind? Well, it really means to have an attitude Hatred. It really means to have an attitude of hatred. So not only are we aliens and enemies, but we hate God. Our attitude, our disposition towards God is hatred. We do not have a neutral disposition. We're not born into this world neutral. Ah, I'm indifferent about God. Uh, maybe I like him, maybe I don't. I don't know. No. To be hostile in mind is to hate God. That is our disposition. That is our attitude. Now, you might think that's a little overboard. I mean, we all know non-believers. We all know people in this world right now, our friends, maybe family members, and we would never say that they hate God. I would never say that they hate God. Indeed, they've never told me that they hate God. I don't know if I know anybody that I've met that actually says they hate God. Very few. Very, very few. The only place I can really think of it is uh, that movie, God's Not Dead, where the professor says he hates God. It was this big thing in the movie because it's like, well, how do you hate somebody that doesn't exist? But again, I don't hear people walking around who are non-Christians saying that they hate God. So why would I say that? Why would Paul say that us... We who have been saved, who have been reconciled, why is he saying that we once hated God and therefore then that everybody who's a non-believer hates God? I mean, do people really hate God? I mean, I know people who say they love God. But then I look at their life and I see, ah, they have sin in their life. They're still practicing sin. Oh, they might go to church once in a while. They say they're a Christian. They're culturally Christian. They, they actually do say that they love God. 
but I see the sin in their life. I know what the Bible says, that those who practice sin have never known the truth. And so then, therefore, then I have to piece in my mind that actually they say they love God, but their life is telling me something otherwise. Their life is telling me that they actually hate God, though they have never said it themselves. I mean, think about yourself. Think about yourself before you came to Christ. Would you actually truly say about yourself that you hated God before you became a Christian? Would you actually say that? Think back if you're able. Do you actually think you hated God? And some of you probably say, well, I don't really think so. I really thought I did. I might have even thought I loved him. Indeed, when we look at our dead friends and family members, we like to throw out, oh, they're a nice person. Oh, they're good. They're such a nice person. The Minnesota, North Dakota, nice attitude. Oh, they're nice. They're fine. And we throw out a billion qualifications. A billion qualifications for why there's no way that they could hate God. But that is what our text is saying. Now, again, all this to say, why? Why do you say that, Sam? If they're not telling us that they hate God, why are you making such a strong assertion that they indeed do hate God? And let's look at our text. What does our text say? 20, verse 21 again, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And there it is. Why do they hate God? How do we know they hate God? Because their deeds are evil. They are doing evil deeds. Now, notice what it doesn't say. This is important. What does it not say? It does not say they're doing some evil deeds. It's not saying they're doing a few evil deeds. It's not saying that once in a while they slip up and make a mistake and do an evil deed. It's not what it's saying. No. These people... Before reconciliation, you, before reconciliation, every non-believer right now is living in a continuous doing of evil deeds. It is your life. You are doing, you are living out a continual practice of evil deeds. And again, you might think that's too extreme. Always doing evil? Really? You might say, I know my best friend from high school. He's not a Christian, but I would never say that he's always doing evil continually. Again, that's a little extreme. I don't know if I would say that. But think about Satan for a moment. We know that he's hostile in mind towards God. We know that he hates God. And we would all probably confidently say that, well, yeah, he's always doing evil. He's always doing evil deeds. There's never a moment where he's just doing some good, sprinkling some good every now and again. No, we would all say, no, he hates God. He's always doing evil. That's who he is. That's his nature. And what are all non-believers of this world called? What does the Bible call a non-believer? Children of the devil? Listen to the words of Jesus in John 8, 44. He's talking to the Pharisees, religious people. People who say they love God and know God. 
Listen to what he says. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. When he does evil deeds, he acts according to his nature. He acts according to his character. That is what he does. That is his continual disposition. And we are called children of the devil. Jesus says to the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. Basically, what he's saying is your whole life is also a continual doing of evil. So if we expect Satan to always do evil, why do we not expect non-believers to also always do evil? Why do we give them the benefit of the doubt? Why do we give them a bunch of qualifications of why they're a nice person and why they're a good person? I mean, listen to what the Bible says about humanity. Listen. We could go to a, a bunch of places, but let's go to John 3, 19 through 21. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works be, should, should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it might be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Jesus has come into the world, but people loved the darkness rather than the light. Because, why? Because their works were evil. They hate the light. Because the light exposes their evil deeds. That is every single person who has ever been born to this world. That is where they're at, fundamentally. And that is where we, every single one of you in here, including myself, was at when we were born into this world. Again, Paul says to the Colossians, and you once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Or consider another text, just to hit it home. Romans 3, 10 through 18. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of ass is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We could go on and on and on with passages that reference our wickedness, our vileness, that reference man's heart, that re reference man's nature, our nature. Now, the thing that we have to realize, though, is that this alienation, this being an enemy, this hating God, this doing of evil deeds, it comes from sin. Sin is man's problem. Sin is the source of our hatred. Sin is our constant disposition apart from God. Sin is everything that is opposed to God. Indeed, sin is the opposite to God. God hates sin. God's wrath rests upon sin. Indeed, God's righteousness and his holiness and his justice demands that his wrath be on it. Always. And sin expresses its vile nature in evil deeds. 
That's why we know that those who do evil deeds continuously hate God. Now, what are these evil deeds? You're probably wondering, well, what does that actually look like? What is an evil deed? If we just go two chapters later in the same book, Colossians, Paul actually gives us a pretty good list. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. Listen. Now he's again, he's talking to these believers, these people who have been reconciled. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetedness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. God's wrath is on these things. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Now, we see lists like that all over the New Testament. That's a good list, though. Those are the evil deeds that we once walked in. Those are the evil deeds that we now must put off. And those are the evil deeds that the people of the world who do not know Christ always and continually live in. That is their nature. And now this is huge. This is huge. You must realize it if you are a Christian. You, like the Colossians, were once this person. You have to really realize this. You were once a God-hater. That might be hard to swallow, but you were once a God-hater. And it's hard to think about that because now if you're a Christian, I love God, and you really do love God. But at one point, you truly were an enemy, filled with all manner of unrighteousness. And so that really is wrapping up our first feature, and that is that reconciliation requires a people. So let's look at our second feature to God's act of reconciliation, and that is that reconciliation involves a plan. Reconciliation involves a plan. So again, the people of God, the people of the world, rather, are enemies and aliens to God, sinful, and thus underneath his wrath and judgment, so what is the plan to make peace with such a people? Again, reconciliation by definition is making peace with your enemies. What is the plan to make peace with such a people? What is this plan? It has to be a pretty good plan. Well, let's look at verse 22. The first half of verse 22. Look at, look at it in your Bibles with me. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. There it is. That's the plan. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. That is the plan. God reconciles the sinful, wicked people by the death of Christ in his body of flesh. Now, we'll work that out a little bit here. What does that mean? How does that work? How, is it, how does that actually accomplish it? Why is that a good plan? Because here's the problem. Think again about the two natures of these two parties. Think about the nature of God. Think about the nature of man. The first, God, the first party, God, is, is perfectly holy and just. He hates sin. Indeed, his justice demands that all sin be punished. We even saw in Colossians 3 that his wrath rests upon these wicked deeds. His wrath always rests upon this sin. Now consider the second party, human beings. When we're born into this world, we do nothing but sin. Human beings hate God because they love sin. They're in the dark and they hate the light and they willingly want to do sin for the rest of their life. 
We wanted to do sin for the rest of our lives. That's all we wanted to do. That's all we wanted was sin. Now these two natures, the nature of God and the nature of man, should be like oil and water. They are oil and water. No matter how much you shake them up or whisk them together or put them through a blender, they're still going to be separated. You are never going to get oil and water to combine and have harmony and have peace. It's always going to separate. Always. And why is that? Well, if you actually look at the chemistry and the chemical makeup of these atoms that make up oil and water, you would be able to see why they just will never come together in peace and in harmony. Or it's like two magnets, you know, the two same sides of the magnets. Have you ever tried that? I used to do it all the time as a kid. I tried to get them together. Like, can I do it? And if the magnets are strong enough, man, you will never get them together. Right when you think you got it, boom, slips by each other. They're not meant to go together. They're not meant to go together. Or it's like putting the wrong key in a lock. It's never going to open it. You can try, you can try, you can twist, you can just get it in there. It's not going to work. It's not meant for it. It's not made for it. That's like the two natures. The nature of God and the nature of man. These things just don't work together. And this is the dilemma. This is the problem. This is why I said that reconciliation should seem to us as impossible. Does it seem to you as impossible? Does this just blow your mind a little bit? This should be impossible. This should not work. God's justice demands that he punishes sin and therefore he punishes the sinner. And man, all he wants to do, all he will ever do is sin against God. There's no reconciliation there. But here we stand. Reconcile. How on earth? How on earth? But this is why the cross of Christ and God's way of salvation is so glorious. This is why the cross of Christ magnifies the glory of God and puts it on display like nothing else could ever do. Because it accomplishes the seemingly impossible. It accomplishes what should be impossible. For the reconciliation to be successful, this is what would have to happen. God's justice would have to be satisfied. It would have to be satisfied. God's character, his nature, demands that sin be punished. And if he didn't punish sin, he would no longer be God. He would no longer be good. He would no longer be just. He would no longer be righteous or holy. God's justice must be satisfied. That has to happen if there's going to be any reconciliation. And then the other part, man's hatred of God must be changed. Man's hatred of God must be changed. How? But that's the only way that peace can occur, but how? And we know that our Lord Jesus accomplished it, though. That's why we saw in the character and passages before this that he was sufficient in doing this. He did it. He did it. And in Ephesians 1, this really is what Paul calls the plan for the fullness of time. This is the plan ordained before time was even a thing. 
put God's glory on display. So how did he do it? Well, we know that Jesus lived a perfect life, which was in complete obedience and love of God the Father. We know he lived a perfect life without doing evil deeds. He never did one evil deed. All that he did was good. All that he did was good. His disposition, his continual attitude was love towards the Father and desire to do the Father's will. So he lived a perfect life, a life absent of evil deeds. And then he went to the cross, and on the cross, he took on man's sin. And look at our text. He took on man's sin in his body of flesh. In his body of flesh. That is the key right there. He took man's sin. If you're a Christian here, he took your sin in his body of flesh, as the text says. In his body of flesh. Which means Christ literally took your sin, which you committed today, which you will commit tomorrow, which you committed yesterday. He actually took that sin and he put it in his body or on his body. And then he was punished in your place. As a substitute. And your sin, and this is huge, your sin was actually there. Your sin was actually there on his body, in his body of flesh. There it was, your sin on Christ. And then God the Father poured out his wrath. We know that God's wrath is always on sin. It must be on sin. And God the Father poured out his wrath on Christ, on your sin, in Christ. And punished him in your place. And thus... God's justice was satisfied on Christ. That's tremendous. That's unbelievable. That actually happened. God's justice was satisfied on Christ. Peter says it very similarly in 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Our sin was put in Christ and Christ was punished in our place so that we would not have to be punished one day because God has to punish sin. So step one to doing the impossible, check. Christ did it 2,000 years ago on Calvary. God's justice was satisfied. Step two, our text doesn't say it directly, but man's heart must be changed. Remember what I said? For this reconciliation to happen, God's justice would have to be satisfied and man's hatred for God would have to be changed. Now, if we go through the scriptures, we see this change all over the place. We'll just look at one. Well, let's just look at the words of Jesus in John 3, 3 through 8. Jesus is talking to a Pharisee. He says, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say, said that to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. 
So, you need to be born again. There it is. That's the plan. Christ takes our punishment. God's justice is satisfied. Christ earns a righteousness by doing good deeds in line with the God, God the Father's will. The gospel comes to us who are dead in our sins. God, hater, God haters, it comes to us in power and it changes us. And the Spirit of God changes us and makes us born again, makes us alive in Christ. He gives us a new nature. He gives us a new heart. He gives us new desires. He gives us new affections. He gives us a new emotion, a new will. Sets us towards God in love. God does all of that. God does all of that. And he gives us faith. And through faith, He gives us the righteousness of Christ, those good deeds that Christ merited, that Christ won for us. And now we truly do, we truly do have an affection towards God. We truly do love him. And that's the amazing thing. That's the miracle. God has done the impossible. He has reconciled the lost to himself. And we did nothing. It's amazing. So that is the plan of reconciliation. Reconciliation involves a plan, and that is the plan. Oh, man, it it certainly is the plan for the fullness of time. Incomprehensible. Unbelievable. But that brings us to our third feature of God's sufficient act of reconciliation. And that is that reconciliation is for a purpose. Reconciliation is for a purpose. Look at the second half of verse 22. I'll read verse 22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Here it is. In order, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's the purpose. There it is. He reconciles you. He saves you. He does the impossible in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That is an incredible reality. It's not as though God reconciles you and just lets you go and do your own thing now. Okay, I've reconciled you. I've saved you from hell. I will no longer have to punish you, but okay, just go on your own way. I don't want anything to do with you anymore. No, 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 no. That's not it at all. It's not like two countries who make a peace treaty after fighting a war, but they still stay two separate countries. They still go along with life just doing their own thing. No, it's like two countries fighting a war against each other to make a peace treaty and they actually become one people. And there's harmony and peace and love there. And they get along and it's... I mean, has that ever happened in human history? I don't know. But that's what it's like. These enemies, God and us, he reconciles us make us holy and blameless to be presented presented before him he reconciles us for relationship for intimacy for love for union for joy again the purpose of reconciliation is to make a people who are holy and blameless and above reproach before him the purpose is to make you like Christ The purpose is to win a bride for Christ who is as holy as he is. Perfect, pure. No sin in her. She's spotless. She's beautiful. 
And then have this holy bride presented to Christ and be forever united with Christ. You, you don't get married to never see your spouse again. Matt, Matty, your newlyweds here, could you imagine if you got married, I was there, I watched it, and now you just go your own ways and just live life separately? It's just ridiculous. That's ridiculous. No, Christ reconciles you so that you can be united with him, that you can experience him, that you can have this intimacy and this love and this relationship with him, that you, you can enjoy each other. And that's some of the most amazing things in the scripture that God actually says that he enjoys us or that he's pleased with us. What? And then we're pleased and we have joy in him. It's an amazing thing. That's the purpose. And this has always been the purpose in scripture. From the beginning to the end, it's always been the purpose. If you go back to the Old Testament, what's God's purpose for the nation of Israel? Consider Leviticus 19.2. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. It's always been the purpose to make a holy people. Or Ephesians 1, 3-4, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. And again, look at the text. Look at what it says. Before Him. Before Him. Present before Him. And now this is actually a picture of judgment. Of all things. It's a picture of when all people who've ever existed, Christians or non-Christians, will stand before God's throne. There they will be before God's throne. Christ returns. And God's purpose for reconciliation is that some, some will be presented before him as a holy people. Some will be above reproach. Some will be blameless. Some will be holy. And those people who are presented to God, to Christ before him, as spotless, without guilt, no accusation can be made against them. They will hear out of Jesus' mouth, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the rest of my Father. Come live the rest of eternity with me forever in perfection. Now those who have not been reconciled to God through the work of the cross, they will be presented before him as unholy, guilty, wicked. And all the accusations land. And what will Christ say to these people, these unreconciled people? He'll say, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. They might even think that they love God. And he'll say, I never knew you. I never loved you. And they will be tossed into the lake of fire for all of eternity. And if we weren't reconciled, that would be us. That would be you. That would be me. But God, in all of his grace and mercy, has reconciled the people and will make them holy and blameless before him at judgment. 
So reconciliation is for a purpose, and that is the purpose. Now let's move into our final feature of God's sufficient reconciliation. And that is that reconciliation contains a condition. Reconciliation contains a condition. Look at verse 23 with me. Paul says this, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. That should be somewhat shocking. That should seem somewhat out of place. Here we have a conditional clause. If indeed... So this purpose of reconciliation, which is to present a people holy and blameless before the Lord, rests on the condition that this people continue in the faith all the way to the end. What does all this mean? What? This amazing reconciliation and all there's a condition? Is Paul saying that someone can lose their salvation here? Is Paul saying that all of this work that Christ did on the cross, bearing our sin... Making us alive in the gospel, changing our hearts, sealing us with the Spirit, can now be voided by our instability in the faith? Can we just wake up one morning and decide, yeah, I don't think I'm a Christian anymore. I was. I truly did love God. God changed me. My sin was actually on the cross. But now I wake up and I just don't think it's what I want anymore. I don't think I want Christ anymore. I don't think I want to be holy and blameless anymore. In fact, I just want to sin. Is that what Paul is saying? Doesn't that seem ridiculous? And if anyone could just decide not to continue in the faith, if anyone, if you right now could just decide not to continue in the faith, well, that means that all Christians in all times could have made the same decision. They could have just decided to not continue in the faith. And God's glorious plan for himself to make a holy people from every tongue, tribe, and nation might not happen. This plan for the fullness of time is just supposed to rest on man now. Christ did all this amazing, impossible work and now it just rests on man. Here's this condition. Keep your faith. Persevere faith. Is this true? Well, here's our dilemma. We cannot simply throw away the simple and forthright meaning of the text. It is clear that Paul is saying that only those who continue in the faith will finally and ultimately be reconciled to God. He is saying that. He is saying that those who continue in the faith finally and ultimately will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And he really is saying, and if, you, if one does not continue in the faith, they will not ultimately be reconciled to God. They will go to hell. He is saying that. But again, we have to realize the context of this letter. It's really important for us to realize this. Here is where remembering that there are false teachers preaching a false gospel, a different gospel to the Colossian church is very important. We have to realize that. So what is Paul saying? He's saying this. Hey, take this situation with the utmost of seriousness. Because if they get you, these false teachers, these 
false gospel proclaimers, if they get you to move away from the gospel, he says that you heard, and we know that they heard it from Epaphras, if they get you to move away from that, that gospel, indeed the gospel that's going throughout all creation, he says this inter- interesting phrase which has been proclaimed in all creation, He's likely just using hyperbole here. It has not yet been proclaimed in all creation, but it will be, and we know it will be because it's promised in Scripture. So Paul probably knows that promise and is just exaggerating and saying it's being proclaimed in all creation. That gospel, that gospel that Paul has been made a minister of, as the text says, which I, Paul, became a minister, that one, that true gospel, the only gospel, If they get you to turn away from that gospel, the only way of salvation, well, then you won't be reconciled to God and you will go to hell. And you will not be presented to God as holy and blameless. So take this seriously. This false teacher ordeal is a big deal. It's as big a deal as it gets. Salvation is on the line. Now, certainly I will be the first to say that nowhere in Scripture does it say that someone can lose their salvation if they've been truly saved. But also, nowhere in Scripture does it, you get this idea that because salvation is assured to those who are truly saved, that they should just live a lax and easy and comfortable life. You can't find that in there either. No, you see instead that you need to live a daily, active life of putting to death your sin. You need to work out this faith. You need to pursue good deeds. You need to live a life of holiness actively. You need to be disciplined. You need to run the race as though to win it. Fight the good fight. Do not get ensnared or entangled in civilian affairs. Run this race. Persevere your faith. Go to the end. Make it. Make it. And in many places of Scripture, in Paul's letters, Paul really is trying to scare the hell out of somebody. Literally. And here's the deal. Salvation is totally secure secure for those whom God has chosen to save. But those people must continue in the faith. You must be found faithful at judgment. I think this text gives us some really good insight here. And it's Romans 5, 10 through 11 again. We already talked about it to to see that we were once enemies. But let's go back to it. Let's go back to it. Listen to what Paul is saying. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. What Paul is doing this in this passage is he's making an argument for the perseverance of the saints by an argumentative method called the greater to the lesser. It's a logical argument. So really what he's saying is Christ has done this greater work already. He's already reconciled you while you were enemies. While you hated him, he took your sin on himself and he faced the wrath of God the Father in your place. He has already changed you and made you alive in him, given you a new heart, and he's sealed you with the Holy Spirit as a promise, as a guarantee for the hope to come, for eternal life. He's already done this greater work. While you were enemies, while you hated him, 
while you had nothing involved in it. He already did the greater work. Therefore, logical argumentation, how much more will he and can he do the lesser work of sustaining that faith? While now, you are no longer an enemy, but a child. A child adopted. A child who has peace with God the Father. And if you were to go back in Romans 5, you would see that he just says it. Someone who stands before the throne in grace, rejoicing. Rejoicing with joy. God has done this greater work of justifying you. How much more will he do the lesser work of persevering your faith to the very end? He will. He will. But we know that this tension between between man's responsibility and God's ultimate sovereignty is all over Scripture. There is this tension here. We're not blind to it. And in our text, in Colossians 1, verse 23, we we see the human responsibility side of the tension. And in other texts, we see God's sovereignty side of the tension. Both are true. We know this tension exists. We do have a responsibility in persevering in the faith. I really do exercise my will in killing sin and delighting in the gospel and believing in Christ every single day and doing good deeds now that I am saved. I really do exercise my will. I really do have a responsibility. But again, if I have been truly saved, God will persevere me to the end because he's going to make me holy and blameless. Now, a text that actually sheds some really good light on the situation that's probably happening, happening in the Colossian church right now is 1 John 2.19. And we should think about this for our lives too. Listen to what John says. It's very insightful. Listen to the words. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that, that they all are not of us. So certainly, there's people in the Colossian church who look like real Christians. Oh man, they look like real Christians. Ah, maybe I've been going to church for four years. Who knows how long it's been? They look like real Christians. They say they're real Christians. They say they love God. But then this false teacher comes in and this false gospel comes in. And what do they do? They go out from us. They go out from us. What? Did they lose their salvation? Why did they follow this false teacher? What's going on here? No. They went out from us, but they were not of us. Because if they were truly saved, if they were truly a Christian, if they were truly your brother or sister in Christ, they would have continued with us. The false teacher would not have pulled them away. It's impossible. But they went out that it might be complained that they all are not of us. And certainly, we're all going to see this one day. And certainly we see on TV, we hear of these, some of them are pastors, pastors of churches full of true believers for decades. And all of a sudden they walk away from their faith, they lose their salvation, and they say that they've really never been a Christian and they don't believe in God anymore and... What? 
They went out from us because they were not of us. And so certainly, we will likely see this happen one day. And if you are that person who goes out from us, we will know that you were truly not of us. And you are not truly saved. And you were deceived by the world. And you were deceived by a false teacher. Now we could go through dozens of texts that show this reality of the perseverance of our faith, both the human responsibility side and both the God's sovereignty side. We go through dozens of them, but we have to stop there. Now I've been talking to Christians a lot tonight. Indeed, our letter is written to Christians. But if you are here tonight and you're not a Christian, if you do not know Christ and you are still an enemy of God, then I want you to hear the words of Paul in a different letter that he wrote. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 20 through 21. Hear these words. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For your sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I, like Paul, implore you, urge you, plead with you, Be reconciled to God. Christ has paid for your sin on the cross. He has satisfied the justice of God in your place. He offers you salvation and forgiveness of sins. The Bible says repent and believe. Turn away from doing evil deeds. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from this life of enmity with God. Turn away from your hatred of God. And turn to Christ and believe in him for salvation. And you will be saved. And you will be reconciled. And the impossible will become a reality for you. You will know God. And that is amazing. And not only that, but you will enter into eternal life with the rest of the bride who have been reconciled. So I urge you, I plead with you, I implore you like Paul did, be reconciled to God. So now I'll ask you the same question to all of you that I did in the beginning. Is it possible that we will live on Mars one day? Or is it just highly improbable? I think it's impossible. Reconciliation is, should have been impossible. But it happened. Because God is a God who can do the impossible. And it was his plan always before he created the world to do the impossible, to reconcile a lost people to himself so that he may be glorified. So that, as we saw in our text earlier, that Christ may be preeminent in all things. And then, you who have been reconciled, remember these features of reconciliation. That reconciliation requires a people, it involves a plan, is for a purpose and it contains a condition. And then marvel at this reality. Here's your application. Marvel at it. Be stunned by it. Be floored by it. Worship God for this reconciliation. That you would be saved. That you, an enemy, would have life and peace with a holy God. Marvel at it. And then... Be one who, like Paul says, now we have been given this ministry of reconciliation. We now have this good news 
that the impossible can actually happen if you trust in Christ. Will we go out proclaiming? Will we go out with this ministry of reconciliation? And will we glorify God? Let us pray. Lord, I pray, Lord, I pray that even tonight as we go home and we lay in our beds tonight that we truly do marvel at this reality. That us, Lord, who were once enemies, who were once far off, who were once in darkness, who were once haters of you, who were once doing evil deeds continually, that we have been reconciled, that we now have peace with the holy God of the universe, the God who created all things, who spoke everything into existence. Would we lay in our beds tonight, Lord, and marvel at this and be stunned by it? Lord, I pray that you lighten each one of us a fire, Lord, to proclaim this reality, to proclaim that there can be reconciliation, that Christ has made the way, and that we would go out and proclaim the good news of the gospel to every creature, as Paul says, in all of creation. Proclaim it. Would we do this, Lord, in your name? Amen.